Hello and welcome to the first episode of I'm Definitely Home for the Holiday Special. I know that this holiday season is unlike any other. We're not able to be with our friends, our family, and for so many of us, finances are tight. And I know it isn't much, but I thought that one way, we thought that one way we could bring perhaps a little bit of joy and hope for people is by putting together some podcasts around the the themes of mental wellness. As I mentioned, I know it's not much, but maybe it's something for someone. Today's guest is Dr. Marsha Reynolds. She is a professional leader in psychology, in the psychology of coaching. Uh, we go over topics such as the feminine identity and the idea that if you truly want to heal, you have to be open to all parts of the healing process not just the good parts. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered, this is an Open Mind, and you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we are joined here by uh, Dr. Marsha Reynolds author of Coach the Person, Not the Problem, uh, has over 25 years work in, in coaching and how to make better coacher, coaches in, uh, in businesses and in, in all avenues of life. So thank you, Marsha, for being on. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. So I originally messaged you because I was driving, I was on my way to work. I work as a counselor and I was thinking like, what is, what is going on in, in today's society? We're not really having conversations. It seems that we're so focused on being right mm -hmm. and the other person being wrong and not necessarily understanding one another. Yeah. Do you happen to notice any similarities? Well, I, I think it's always been that way. Right. <laughs> But everything's intensified right now. You know, emotions are intensified. Um, the conflicts that we have with each other are intensified. And so I think that the difficulties we have connecting and communicating are just worse. I mean, it's, uh, you know, at the beginning of, of the pandemic, they were saying, oh, this will bring people together. And like, now they're finding, no. Yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, breaking them apart. Um, and many of those things that are coming out are coming forward. They were there all along. Right. <laughs> so if people don't know how to deal with what's emerging, then it becomes, uh, if not just conflict, it becomes the crisis of relationship. And, and I think kind of uh, to echo on that, we have been forced together now. Whereas before there was a lot of avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. I'll just go golfing. I'll just read a book, whatever. I'll distract myself in some way. Yeah. But now we are, you know, for lack of a better term, we're stuck or we're, we're with each other. Mm -hmm. Right. I always, <laughs> you say go for golf. I would get on an airplane and go overseas. <laughs> <laughs> right. Travel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, it's like, can and it, it is a good question. Can I really deal with this person on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and there's a truth to that. Sometimes um, 
you know, relationships have been avoiding the inevitable for a long time. So mm -hmm. some things you can bring to the surface and work through if there's an on honesty and willingness. But there could also be an honesty that says, um, I've been avoiding this for years and, and, and conveniently avoiding that, uh, that we've grown apart. Right. Um, so I, I think, and all I'm wanting is, I think it's important that people feel okay, no matter what they're going through. And so again, sometimes um, if we have the tools, this can deepen our relationships. And sometimes we realize we'd be better off apart. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and I don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's important that if, if you've gone off and read books and played golf or jumped on airplanes, <laughs> <laughs> then maybe right. there's something that you've been avoiding. So, yeah. It, this kind of segues nicely into uh, your recent book, The Coach, mm -hmm. the Person, Not the Problem. And this idea of, of having difficult conversations and what we can get out of them. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit ab about your book. Well, it's interesting you say that. Actually, my last book, The Discomfort Zone, was really more on um, the importance of having uncomfortable conversations, that you want a conversation to be uncomfortable because that's when you really get uh, to the truth, to, uh, face the things you've been avoiding, bring blind spots to light that are difficult to look at, but how important that is to our growth. Um, you know, I wrote it primarily for leaders, uh, you know, coaches and leaders to don't avoid emotions. Emotions are critical to learning. Um, so understand that before I became a coach um, for uh, 16, I've been a coach 25 years, but for 16 years, I worked for companies running training departments. And I have a, my second master's is in adult learning psychology. So I know that uh, emotions are a part of learning, that when mm. we, in order to learn, you have to let go of what you know. That's why I love the name of your podcast. <laughs> I'm probably wrong about everything. That means you're open to learn. Most people aren't. Yeah. They need to know. That's why when you started this by saying, you know, we get into these arguments of I know and you don't, um, it, you know, better we start with I know nothing. Yes. <laughs> Let's take a look at what's what's possible, what's in front of us, see if we can't come to an understanding together. You know, right. um, now in coach the person, it's really more of a coaching approach to where you do that, not because you and I are in relationship, but I'm as a coach or as a counselor trying to help you expand your perspective or even shift it to see something new. Um, and so the book is full of ways to, uh, to do that with people, both with your presence as well as what you say. Right. Um, and helping people to understand themselves better uh, so they can get unstuck <laughs> right. and move forward. So the two books kind of go together. You know, I wrote them kind of uh, based on problems I was seeing with people getting stuck in conversations and not knowing how to move them forward. 
Mm -hmm. Well, early on in in, in your book, there's this, uh, this sort of equation and it's reflective statements plus questions Mm -hmm. equals reflective inquiry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I've been teaching coaching for, uh, you know, almost for 20 years, almost as long as I've been a coach, I'm on faculty in four different countries. And, um, you know, and so I, I know what might be cultural differences, but I also know what are human um, differences. But I've always, you know, people get real stuck and think coaching is asking questions and it's not. Mm. So I was the president of the International Coach Federation in the year 2000 when we rolled out certification and the competencies and it was never intended that coaching it was just a question asking methodology and most people think that but reflecting what I heard you say summarizing pulling out the key words that you keep repeating and then noticing your emotional shifts and just saying, you know, you got quiet when you said that, or you got, you know, irritated when you were talking about that person, what's that about? So the reflection is just as critical as the question that in fact, my questions, you're usually just a follow on to the reflection. So as I was writing the book, I said, well, I need to just to go back and say, and credit the person who really first defined this. Well, I went back into my um, coaching books, couldn't find it. My psychology books, couldn't find it. And then I went back into my work. Uh, You know, I mentioned that it was actually the late 80s, my second master's in adult learning, and I found it. And there's a guy named John Dewey. Mm. He wrote a book in 1910 called How We Think. And the very first chapter really defines the coaching approach. And he, he, let me just say, he wanted teachers to have students to think more broadly for themselves. Right. Yeah. So he said, you know, when they talk, share back what you hear and then be curious about it. So, it, so they think about it. And that was the foundation of that work. <laughs> That's that's a great point. I I think did he write the book uh, as a man thinketh he becomes? Mm, I don't know. Okay, well, but that name sounds familiar, and <laughs> it's so true that part of if we want to have a meaningful conversation, we have to listen to the person. Mm-hmm. And listening, like you say, is is taking what they say and kind of mm-hmm. paraphrasing it back so that they know that you're listening. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we hear things and then we kind of uh, just, you know, we shape it to what we want them to say (laughs) and then throw it back at them. And it's like, well, you're just saying this. And they're like, that's that's not what I'm right. No, no. You know, what's the motivation? Right. And that's just it. Are you trying to win this argument or are you trying to grow from it? Yeah. And come together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, right. <laughs> so so you probably notice a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance when you're working with people. You're trying to help them become aware of their own biases, I imagine. Is that correct? Well, dissonance could be um, 
you know, conflict of values. Dissonance can come from a lot of things, not just right. bias. Um, yeah, I like to bring bias forward, but when you say dissonance, oftentimes what I find, um, like even right now, um, uh, with the conflict of values, you know, people have work to do, but they've got their family. And so what comes first and how do I prioritize that? And, you know, um, and so they, uh, they, they may get mad at their family because they're making a lot of noise and they can't do their work and, <laughs> right? You know, and the dissonance is, is saying, um, uh, you know, this is important to me, but so is that, how can I work through it? So I find oftentimes in when I'm coaching that two things really, well, three really stand out. One, the beliefs that I'm carrying over from the past that don't serve me and certainly don't fit the world I'm living in now. Okay, mm -hmm. that's number one. And I like to reflect that. Number two is the crazy assumptions I'm making about the future, you know, and so when I'm scared, I make everything up that is going to be awful. I was just talking to a friend of mine who has a ton of money in the bank for her retirement, but she's like, she comes from scarcity. She grew up that way. And she's like always terrified, you know, and making these decisions that are like, um, let's look at reality here. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. Um, but then the third one then is um, these conflicts of, of what's right or wrong. And, um, you know, we have many values and uh, there isn't often a right or wrong. It's a little right. bit of this, a little bit of that. So these are the things we bring to the surface when we hear them. So, I, you know, I let my clients just start telling their story. But you listen to the story and you listen to the beliefs they're holding that are holding the story together. And then the predictions about the future that are scaring them to death, you know, and then those values that keep coming up that are creating the conflict. That's more important than me saying, wow, there's a bias. <laughs> right. Know? Which they will probably say, no, you're wrong. So, right. yeah. What, what beliefs do you see as being quite toxic in the people that you meet with? Like, do you see any kind of some parallels between people that it's like that belief is causing this person this, there's, there's some, some kind of uh, universality in this belief that is creating talk. You know what? I can't, I can't answer that because it's contextual. It would depend on the situation. There's so many beliefs we hold on to. Um, you know, I think that we all experience, well, here in the U.S., we experienced it pretty heavy in the last year, you know, your strong beliefs about uh, political system. Right. <laughs> and even what's happening now, and then people believing these, these crazy conspiracies, and, you know, and, and um, you're like, how could they believe that? But the brain is m much more interested in um, story than fact, um, and we base things on what makes us comfortable, uh, not what's real. Um, so, you know, so we do, we, we, we hold on to these beliefs because we're afraid to let them go because who will I be if I let them go? You right. Know? So, you know, so there's that there. And then there comes back to, you know, the, the original thing we were gonna talk about, about um, concepts of masculinity and femininity and, and even relationships. Because, you know, those concepts of what makes for a good relationship um, is changing. So even when I said, 
you know, sometimes being together all day long, we realize this relationship doesn't serve us. I guarantee you that triggered people, <laughs> you know, who have a belief that you should find a way to stay together yeah. no matter what. Yeah. You know? Um, I got to keep bashing my head through this yeah, and suffering through it. Gonna, yeah. Yeah. If I end this relationship, pull, woe is me. I'm going to be. Then I'm a quitter. Yeah. Yeah. Or I, yeah. Or I'm going to be lonely. I need someone. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are Wait. just, you know, again, beliefs we've held on to. Um, do we cause them inherited beliefs that we probably even got them from our grandparents, not just right. our parents and, and we, and our younger self, you know, and again, do they serve us today and how do we know they're real and are we open to being wrong or are we open to another possibility that that could work just as well? And you raise a great point about these inherited traits. And mm -hmm. I so think that, you know, we're, we're a, a species that's evolved over a hundred thousand years, whatever it is exactly. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But in the last 80 years, the amount of change that the human species has seen Mm -hmm. is like we can't even really comprehend it right it's just so immeasurable mm -hmm. but there is a degree of you know we're still in the wild and I think that's where you know the, these notions of anxiety and depression kind of come from is because we're always looking for security and that's part of that primitive part of our brain that's mm -hmm. been in control for the last tens of thousands of years that now suddenly in 80 years, it's like, okay, we don't really have to worry about that. We have everything that we need, mm -hmm. but we still have those, like you say, inherited traits. Well, beliefs. Beliefs, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I was listening to um, a neuroscientist yesterday who, who made sense to me that I never looked at this. You know, what you were saying is um, for, for the longest time, I too, and I write about it, believe that, you know, the brain's primary purpose was to keep us safe. Okay, so can this hurt me? And so I don't want to, um, to be in a place to where I feel uh, not just physical harm, but psychological harm. Um, you know, so uh, being wrong is, is feels unsafe. But she said, you know, no, they have found that it's, it's, it is partially we want to be safe and so we don't take risks. But she said the primary function of the brain is to make meaning mm. out of everything. So that we may see something as unsafe, you know, is the meaning we make out of it. But um, in every context, it's like when you're walking down the street and you see a paper bag and then as you cl get closer, you realize it's a rock. You know, we do this all the time. We see something out of the corner of our eye and our brain instantly defines. So that was a bird when it was, you know, a piece of paper. Um, right. But the brain wants to make meaning of everything. And it will quickly do that. It doesn't like to sit in that not knowing. That's why I said to you, you know, I, I'm probably wrong about everything. Most people won't live there and the brain won't allow them to. Mm. And, and so... Um, it's why we hold on to these beliefs and uh, don't change them because it gives us a sense that we understand 
which gives us a sense of safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and going into that, it, it's almost like really the way I kind of see it, and this is a dangerous statement, is that there are no absolutes. There's always exceptions to the rule. And for our brains, like you're saying, that the, the security aspect of always being right, that's why we like to kind of categorize things as black and white. Like it's either this or it's that. Why, especially when we're afraid. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, it's it's funny thing. So I said, that's why people are believing all these conspiracy theories and all that. But then I said a very biased thing. I said, it's crazy. You right. know? Yeah, yeah. There was my judgment yeah. that my perspective right. is better than theirs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm you such know, a rational thinking that's person. That's what I believe yeah. is right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that kind of brings us into, it's, it's not the perfect transition, but I do want to talk about the idea of femininity and masculinity mm. and how I, like, for example, I, la, I, la, I like musicals, you know, mm -hmm. and apparently that's not a very masculine thing, right? Mm -hmm. So why are we having such a problem with this in today's day and age? I mean, for example, there's there's this idea of gender fluidity. There's why why are we having such a problem with this? Well, I would care. Be careful with the word we. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, the, yes, because you know things don't change; they shift, and shifts mm. take time. If you look at um, uh, the acceptance of different forms of what's uh, masculine and feminine, it's been shifting for decades, you know? So like even saying um, something's wrong with you if you like musicals. My dad loved musicals, ran around singing right. songs. You know, I would never have said that was not, that he wasn't masculine. Exactly. Know? So I grew up with that. Um, uh, how many people see in Hamilton, <laughs> you know? So, um, and they, there was research. So my doctoral research um, was on high achieving women in the workplace. Cause mm -hmm. I said, all these books are about women as if we were passive and we can't speak up. What about the ones who speak up too much, <laughs> you know? And what I found was um, that I think it's BEM sex, sexual um, survey that they used to give college students that define femininity and masculinity. Um, and what they were finding was that the concepts of femininity and masculinity have been changing for quite some time. So what they would say is masculine is um, uh, not what you like, but things like being decisive. Um, uh, Stoic. Yeah. You know, where it's like, nah, that's just not characterizing, you know, that far more women fit into the masculine role and far more men were fitting into the feminine. And so um, the stereotypes might still exist, but the assessment of what's right and wrong has been shifting for, for quite some time. Right. You know, so um, I did my dissertation and wrote my book, Wonder Woman, <laughs> for these women. And like, the book came out 2010, but my research was 2006. So, so I'm telling you a research that, you know, is um, what, 13 years old. Um, and that was 
Um, yeah, sexual identification survey. That's what that was. Um, and, and they were saying it then that, you know, it's, it's totally shifting. We can't put people in these boxes anymore, you know? And so to, so to say, you know, like men don't cry, it's like, ah, there's so many men that cry and a lot of women that don't, right. <laughs> you know, it's like buck up, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now, growing up, and, and just to kind of share my own story, and mm -hmm. I, I, I would love to hear yours and how you got into this, uh, and I apologize for my listeners, but my dad passed away when I was 14, mm -hmm. and that's a very crucial age in sort of your identity, mm -hmm. right? So when that happened, I was thinking like, well, what does it mean to be a man? I got I to gotta figure this out. Like, I'm running out of time here. I got I to gotta get my shit together, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought that by not expressing your feelings that that's what it meant to be masculine. Like you just have to kind of, you know, stick your chest out and, and just take it all and, and, you know, kind of repress everything. And I have no idea where I got that from, but that's just what I thought. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, that just was not working out for me. The, the, the cost of living that way mm -hmm. was so, so heavy, you know, the yeah. kind of like the depression and, my own struggles with addictions and things like that. So my question is kind of where are our ideas of what is masculine and feminine coming from? Yeah. Well, I mean, there have been, you know, there was much more of a delineation years ago. So that thing I told you about the BAM, BAM sexual identity survey, when they first started it, like in the fifties, there was clear delineation of right. women do this, men do this. Um, you know, what happened in the sixties right. was a big shift um, in terms of uh, girls being told for the first time they can be anything, they can do anything, mm. that they had power. Um, you know, and, and in the seventies here in the US, we had title nine, which said they could do competitive sports. Um, so they started becoming strong in their body as well as their mind. Uh, you know, so, so there was that uh, shift culturally and, and that shift has happened at different times around the world, but it's continued to happen, you know, of, of who women are and what they can accomplish. Right. At the same time um, in the sixties, it was, there was that whole thing about, you know, being much more tolerant of, of differences. And so that launched it. Now, um, I think it's been a slower acceptance of uh, diversity of characteristics in men than women. But um, even that thing about don't show emotions, women are given the same message. It's like, it'll make right. you speak. You know, so yes, you know, uh, boys are brought up don't show emotions but but so are women that's a great point yeah mm -hmm. of course yeah it's more about our fear of dealing with other people's emotions than it is that it defines identity yeah i i, I like what you're saying there because it, it's almost a misrepresentation to think that the stereotype is that men are all strong and bold and whatever and that women are just these like hard on their sleeve individuals and yeah. that and, that, and that, a lot of women i know are not like that exactly right so but where is that stereotype coming from 
you know, well, like again, it was yeah. far more clear up until the sixties. Right. And then in the sixties, that's when we're starting to see blew like, it all open. Oh, wait a second. Yeah. 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 You know, and there's been backlash and, you know, trying to go back to old ways, but you know, the door Pandora's box was open. Right. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and when people resist it, again, it's just out of their fear, you know? So the mm -hmm. men that like still push, no, you gotta be a man's man are just afraid of their own sensitivity, you know? Because it's there. Right. Humans, <laughs> but uh, it's not like it's wired into you to be tough guy. You know, that's a learned behavior. It's not a, a an a inherent, it's not a genetic behavior. Right. Well, and, and thinking about the, the, the neuroscience of that. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not something that's part of our gene. It, correct me if I'm wrong. It's not something that's in our genes, mm -hmm. our sort of our evolutionary, mm -hmm. you know, this is us kind of thing, our, our makeup, but it's more a cultural societal kind of thing mostly that i mean there are some some uh hormonal differences of course <laughs> you know that uh, most men have more testosterone than women but not necessarily all the time <laughs> you know um and and that could cause a little bit more uh aggressive behavior right um, but again i would say that it's aggressive not you know not what they're not willing to do, but more of what they will do. But I know quite a few women that are very aggressive and, and willing to jump into a fight pretty quickly. Um, so me too. Yeah. Well, you grew up with tough women. So, you know, so, you know, that it's not fair, you know, and I, I, I always say um, to stereotype anybody, men, women, Canadians, Americans, not fair. Right. You know, when people talk about Americans, I say, which ones? <laughs> the North is different from the South, the West from the East, and everything within the states are shifting. Look sure. at Arizona, where I'm from. You know, um, we're totally shifting to a, more of an urban mentality. And even within those own categories, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And, and I know that from traveling. I, I, I teach a lot in China and you know, Shanghai is different from Beijing and Northern China is different from Southern China. And, you know, you can't say the Chinese. It, yeah. And you certainly can't say Asians because every single one of those countries are different. So right. all we can do is to be curious and to listen to each other and try to understand what's important to you. That You bring up a good point too, because um, a lot of what seems to be going on there's a very sort of, I don't know if we're forgetting about the, the integrity and the importance of the individual. Mm. And there's this kind of collectivist sort of, these are the changes that we wanna see. And it's like, what, what's going on here? So. Mm -hmm. So what's the question? <laughs> so the, the, the question is, yeah, in terms of what do you see is happening? Do you, do you see that there's this sort of, collectivist these are the changes and we want them right now do you see that happening well, i'm talking about cancel culture oh you know i i don't think that that's a change i think that's just a oh. 
Uh, Sorry, you, you, you got disconnected there a little bit. Okay. So I said, all um, you know, things that change within a society, it's a shift. It, it happens over time. And there's a thing called a tipping point, right? Where boom, enough of, of, of people believe and act this way that it then becomes a part of that culture, whether it's within a city, within a state, within a country, within a community. Right. Um, so no, there isn't a today I wake up thinking different. You know, it's been happening over time. Um, you know, and there's always things with, you know, the younger generation goes through their stuff, you know, and then they get right. older and they believe differently. So, you know, there's stuff that comes up. Uh, and, and so will the council culture um, survive? I don't know. You know, right now it's just a thing. It's not demonstrating that it's yeah uh, a permanent, yeah. <laughs> well, Marcia, you make a good point about the 60s because that was a very well, that was an extremely transformative time in terms of mm -hmm. society and culture. Mm -hmm. And then the 80s came, right? And the 90s, and it was sort of like, you know, like right back on the pendulum. And now we're over here. And then it, it seems like there's constantly a, a back and forth. There's the reformative and there's the progressive. Well, you know, I, I don't think so. I disagree. I think mm -hmm. it's still, if you look at the tipping point, there's those, you know, early adapters, um, that will continue to adapt. They're not going backwards, you know? So, and, and again, part of it's maturity. So I said, you know, the um, young adults, what they're going through is a part of the maturation process, you know, and then they, they define who they are in their later twenties, early thirties, um, you know, and, and that who I think I am is, a, is an evolutionary thing. We continue to adapt that. Right. And, and so um, uh, I don't think, yeah, I think that, that um, what happens is those people were always there, the people that didn't want to go with the 60s. And, and it's like, okay, now my voice is going to be heard. Mm -hmm. Now my voice is going to be heard. But I know a lot of old hippies <laughs> <laughs> that, right. you know, they're, um, they may not be running around saying free love and and doing drugs, but they got out the vote, mm. got out the vote, you know, and are doing a lot of things to make sure that we have uh, progressive, that, we, you know, that this thing that happened here <laughs> doesn't, yeah. that we went back to civility. Right. You know, so no, those people are still there. They yeah. didn't disappear. They didn't all of a sudden go, okay, now I'm just going to be a boomer and make money and, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to believe in humans. And, right, right. Oh, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It's just whose voice is being heard, what leaders emerge mm -hmm. um, that bring those voices forward. It's like what we heard here in the United States in the last few years, four years, was because we had a leader that encouraged um, uh, voices of, you know, I hate to say hate, but d divisiveness. Yeah. He encouraged that. They were always there. Right. You know, but he gave them a platform. Yeah. So, but 70, you know, 74 million or whatever it is voted for that guy or well, some they were always there. They exactly. Were, they right? would have anyway. Remember, yeah. it's a shift. We don't just all of a sudden become. Yeah. And, 
And so when you look at what happened in the last four to eight years, the shift is happening. The shift is happening. We just have to be more patient, you know, and the shift of um, the immigrants' voices um, are coming out. And please understand, I'm, I'm just a second generation American, you know, yeah. so I understand the, the importance of the immigrant voice and, and uh, um, opportunity. So, or I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. tell us a little bit about your story, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, I'm watching the time. So I'm going to make it really short. Sure. Yeah, because well, um, in your 20s, there was a, you know, a big change here for you. Well, I, you know, I had a tough um, teenage years and I yeah. got involved in drugs and ended up in jail. But, you know, I have to say I have opportunity that a lot of people don't have. I have privilege. Okay. And so for me to be able to say, okay, I'm going to stand up and go out and make a difference in the world. It's easier for me than a lot of people that get lost in that world. But because I recognized I had this and I, my life was saved and I had a second chance, I felt like I really needed to make a difference um, with the second chance I had been given. What saved you? Actually, my cellmate who told me to quit feeling sorry for myself and get my ass out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, she gave me the big kick. Yeah. Um, but she made me recognize who I was and what I could do. Because I was like, woe is me. My life mm. is awful. It's over. And she's like, it's not over. You're just 20. <laughs> yeah, you're just getting started. Right, right. And so she helped me to see who I am and what I could do in the world. So she gave me the second chance. So from that, but but again, recognizing that when I said my grandparents, my grandparents never saw their families again, and they were probably killed. Okay, and so my little grandmother had inner strength in her more than I've ever seen anyone have. So I inherited, right. you know, the strength to, it's like, who are these people to tell me my life is over? I'll show you, right, right. you know? And so my cellmate brought that energy back mm. out and I was going to demonstrate that I could do whatever it is that I wanted to. Um, she just needed to remind me, to remind me of who I was. Um, so I do credit my, the strength of my, my uh, uh, ancestors <laughs> that, uh, um, that I have inherited and brought forth. And again, she was a very strong woman. So I had a strong woman model who was smaller than me and I'm very small. I'm not five foot or whatever that would be in your measurements. <laughs> it's the same, yeah, yeah. But um, she... Uh, she was so strong, so powerful, you know, and so I have, I have that. So again, it's maybe not in my genes. We do have tendencies we're born with, but most of our behavior is learned. And I learned that from her. Right. Well, in, in, in closing, and I love what you said about the, uh, the swift kick, you know, we need to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. Mm-hmm. What's the advice that you can give to an individual listening that they can have a better life? Well, first off, it, it doesn't matter who we are with. And you don't wanna be with people who are just commiserating with you. 
you know, and saying, yeah, life is awful. Yeah, that was really crappy what they did. That's not helpful. You know, so the people that maybe make you feel uncomfortable are your best allies. They may be your angels, <laughs> you know, or your teachers. Um, uh, so I think it's important of who we surround ourselves with, or at least spend time with, um, uh, to help us remember who we are. And of course, I, I stand for coaching. Go get a coach. They'll help you. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Marsha, thank you so much for your time. Uh, be sure to check out Coach the Person, Not the Problem. What was that? The other one that you said sort of dovetails quite nicely. Oh, oh the book before that was The Discomfort Zone. The, yeah, that, what a wonderful name. Yeah. You know, I think uh, we, we can be easily betrayed by comfort. Oh, yeah. Well, a brain wants to be comfortable, but, you know, there's no such thing. You're either growing or you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. You're either growing or you're stuck. What, what an excellent way to end it. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Marsha, thank you so much for your time and uh, take care. Yeah, you too. You too. Be well. Once again, that was Dr. Marsha Reynolds sharing with us uh, her perspectives. I love what she said about we think that what's happening is new this idea of culture and counterculture and the, the conflict in the world. And really, like she said, it's been going on forever. So how can we kind of come to terms with that? How can we stop fighting and start understanding? And I think that's the biggest thing is that in our world where we encourage people to be who they are and whatever they are, we also need to invite conversation to those that have opinions that clash with ours. I'm not saying we agree with them. I'm certainly not saying that they're okay to have these ideas, but by saying what's right and what's wrong, that can make things incredibly problematic. And I don't think it's helping anybody, right? So once again, if you find yourself in disagreement with somebody, instead of trying to make your side right and their side wrong, stop, listen to what they're saying, and see it as an invitation for conversation. And I guarantee you, you're going to get a lot out of it. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.